0: So please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come now to hear from your word, to look at your words in a little bit of detail. And Lord, we ask that you would impress upon us the magnitude of what has happened in this passage. We pray, Lord, that we would be moulded and changed by your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would not go away um, untouched, but that we would go away with a greater uh, impression of what you have done, with a greater understanding, with a greater knowledge. And we pray, Lord, that, that it might actually result in a change in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear and our minds to receive. Please, Lord, soften our hearts. And please, Lord, use my mouth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember the man who made himself king in Iraq a few years ago? His name was Saddam Hussein. This man had no right to power. He, but he weaselled and he manipulated and he connived his way into power as president in 1979. He he did some nice things for the people of Iraq. He uh, he pushed for free compulsory education. He made hospital access free, he gave land to farmers and he helped mechanise the farming industry, he increased industrialization and he just generally improved the living standards of the average Iraqi. But this didn't make him a good king, because at the same time as he was doing these nice things, he was also killing his political colleagues, he was carrying out massacres, arresting anybody who opposed him, rigging elections and just invading other countries because he owed them money. Lots of people didn't like him, and eventually he was falsely accused of manufacturing and stockpiling weapons of mass destruction. That's weapons that could harm a lot of people at one time. And so his enemies assembled and invaded his country. His government was torn down. Saddam was captured in a hole nine months after he went missing. Eventually, he was brought to trial, and three years after he was arrested, he was found guilty of crimes against humanity, and he was sentenced to death. A few days later, he was brought to the gallows where a rope was prepared for his execution. Many of his countrymen looked on and shouted at him. They mocked him. They taunted him. All the while, Saddam called for his people to fight back against the foreign invaders and then he began to recite his Islamic creed. And while reciting the words of his religious faith, the trapdoor underneath his feet opened and he spoke no more. His body was entombed. And this man has no more power, he has no more influence. His kingdom has fallen, and even now his country is still in disarray. People celebrated his death, they tore down the statues of on the streets and graffitied the uh, the murals of his face they celebrated he was an evil dictator whose good deeds did not overcome the million or so people who were killed by his own actions or as a result of the actions which he took he was a bad king who deserved everything that he got in his humiliation and death and and he's a historic Figure, but an awful historic figure, often compared with uh, Stalin and Hitler. But you know what? He's kind of old news now. I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't thought about the man in a while. He's done and dusted. He's been and gone. He got his just desserts. Sure, his actions will have ramifications for years to come in his in his country and in the region. But even now, his memory is fading. And for many of us here today on the other side of the world, the man is just irrelevant. And in years to come, you might even forget what he was famous for and you'll have to look up Wikipedia and and try and remind yourself, oh, that's right, that was that guy. This self-made king, Hussein, was handed over by the invading army. He was tried, he was mocked, he was executed and buried in the Middle East and we will forget him. Yet today we are gathered on a public holiday dedicated to remembering a king who was handed over by a foreign invading force, who was tried, who was mocked, who was executed and buried in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. So why do we care about one king and not the other? Because one is a good king who brought life and one is an evil king who brought death. We're gathered here to be told again about our good king's trial, to relive his torture, to be reminded of his death. And we celebrate his death. We commemorate, we venerate, not because he was an evil king who got his comeuppance, but because he is an innocent and good king whose death establishes a good reign over our lives as saviour and redeemer. That king, of course, is Jesus. That king is our king. Jesus, our king, was killed on that Good Friday. So, brothers and sisters, I invite you to join with me as we reflect on those events of that fateful day. We're not doing anything special. We're just going to go through and see what Mark says in his account of the death and burial of Christ. There are four things that we will notice along the way. We'll notice that Jesus is a king mocked. The author of this text, Mark, tells us in a rather matter-of-fact fashion how Jesus' death went down. And even though the passage that we read is loaded, it's saturated with Old Testament references, Mark doesn't really give us any explanations along the way. He just lays it out piece by piece, blow by blow in the deepening, darkening story of Christ's death. On Sunday just past, we had heard about how Jesus had been mistried in a Jewish court and then interrogated by Pilate, the Roman governor, who found no real reason to deserve him of death. Nevertheless, in order to keep the peace, keep the locals happy, Pilate handed over Jesus to be executed by crucifixion. And we had heard about the way that they mistreated Jesus. They beat him, they mock him, they humiliate him with, with taunts and assault. And having bashed him thoroughly, they took him out to crucify him. You might be tempted to think that Jesus had suffered enough by now. Having been beaten at the high priest's house and then whipped and caned at the governor's place, and then you'd think it'd be enough, but the mocking will continue. They roped in a fellow off the street named Simon to help the physically weakened Jesus to carry the crossbar to his place of execution. And then... As they're getting ready to crucify Jesus, they strip him of his clothes. And the Roman soldiers, divided amongst themselves, it's kind of like their, their, their bonus there. With Jesus stripped and beaten, without even the clothes on his back, he's nailed to a cross, crucified between two criminals at 9am on that Friday morning. And they had a sign up that said, Jesus, King of the Jews, so that everybody knew why he was being executed. This man dared to be king. And the mocking continued. Passers by mocked a defenseless dying man. What bravery, mocking a defenseless man. Those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, He cannot save Himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him. With the tables turned, the religious leaders let rip. They weren't afraid to tell him what they thought now, that he was incapacitated and unable to defend himself. Here, this innocent man continued to suffer. Jesus, who had already suffered so much with the physical pain, he suffered the desertion of his friends who wouldn't stick with him. He'd had the civil authorities who were supposed to protect him and give him a fair trial had failed him. And now he's hanging naked on a cross while people insult him. And what makes it all the more worse is that it's not just because he's innocent, he's the son of God hanging on that cross. He is the creator of the people who are now hurling insults at him. He could have called a thousand angels to cast those snide taunters into oblivion yet there he remains bearing the insults and insults even from the men who were being executed with him he doesn't call out against his abusers he does not come down from the cross in swift judgment he does not call down fire from heaven our gentle saviour hung there he stayed the course He would finish the mission, even while his own creation mocked him. And friends, uh, it's probably worth thinking about the fact that if we were there, we probably would be amongst those people hurling insults at him. Next, we see Jesus, our king's darkest hour. About midday on that fateful Friday, everything got dark, literally. How? I don't know. There might have been thick cloud or some um, astronomical event. But creation itself reflected in that land, the darkness of what was happening, of what was approaching. And then three hours later, at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus calls out in Hebrew. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus calls out in anguish, he's suffering, he's bearing the sin of man, he's weighed down by the guilt of mankind, he's being crushed for our iniquities. He has become a curse for us. And as he he hangs there, he calls out in anguish to his father, he calls out the first line of Psalm 22, a Psalm of David, when David was in despair. And here Jesus claims that psalm as his own, as a king in despair, calling out to God. Yet we know that this psalm is a psalm that reflects trust in God. And we can expect that Jesus too trusted God in those moments, even though he felt so far from him. Jesus continues to trust God, but that doesn't take away the separation and desertion that he feels in those moments. As Jesus calls out the first line of Psalm 22, it would be as if I said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Even though I only said one line, it conjures up in our minds a whole song with rich meaning. You might have even started to think about the next line of the text as I said it. So too, when Jesus calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He imports the whole meaning of Psalm 22 into what was going on on that cross. And as we read earlier, you would have seen that all the points in that psalm reflected something in the life of Jesus Christ and His death. Jesus is facing the final moments in His life. On the doorstep of death with the sins of the world weighing on his shoulders. The ominous dark is creeping in and he feels forsaken by God. And the onlookers, they don't care. They continue to taunt. Jesus cried out and the people started to mock him again saying, Oh, he's calling out for Elijah. Let's wait and let's see if Elijah turns up to save him. They sarcastically call out to him and in those moments of contempt, and as Jesus suffers under the weight of the task, he cried out once more and he breathed his last. Jesus, our King, was killed on that Good Friday. But we also see that Jesus is a King for all. At that moment when he died, across the city in the temple, a curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. It was torn in two. And in that Jewish religious system, that temple represented the division between the holy God and unholy man. And the only person who could pass through that temple was a, a very holy, prepared person on one day of the year, a priest, so he could offer up a sacrifice so that, so that God would be pleased with the people. So that their sin could be covered. Yet on that day when Jesus died, that curtain separating the division between God and man was torn open. It was, it was torn asunder. No more would there be separation between God and man. The way has been opened. Jesus is that final sacrifice. The priests won't need to take sacrifices into the Holy of Holies anymore because Christ's sacrifice has gone and done it all for them. Jesus' death has opened the way to God. And interestingly, in those final moments after Jesus' death, when the way is opened, the first person to call out the true nature of Jesus is a Gentile. He's a Roman. He is an enemy of the Jewish people. He said, when the centurion who stood facing him, the guy who oversaw his, res- his uh, execution, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This man was a Gentile, he was not part of God's people, he's the bad guy. Yet as soon as the way is open to God, he recognizes who God really was. He recognises who Jesus really was. We are reminded in those moments that amongst Jesus' travelling entourage, there was also a group of women who were supporting him. They had committed to support him even to the very end and were there at the cross. They were there at the cross when most of Jesus' disciples were nowhere to be found. These devout ladies supported Jesus and they were accepted by Jesus. And so what Mark has done by putting this Roman centurion, confessing Jesus is the Son of God, right next to this travelling group of women who came and supported him, he's reminding us that the way is opened to all. To those who are outside the faith. There is no more division between Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all may be Come to Christ, receive Him as Lord, and may become disciples of Him. Jesus is a King of all. All who would come to Him and receive Him. But fourthly, we see that Jesus is a King entombed. Jesus king was killed that Good Friday. After all that Jesus had gone through, both physical torture and bearing the sins of the world, it was no wonder that he died after only six hours. Now, a boy called, called Joseph went and asked Pilate for his body and Pilate agrees, after checking that he was really dead. He said, to, he called the centurion and said, is this guy really dead? He said, yes. It was surprising because normally it took a few days for people to die in crucifixion. But the centurion said, yes, he's dead. And we can be sure that he was dead because this guy was a professional killer. This is what he did for a job. He knew when people were dead. So, Pilate hands over the body to Joseph. Joseph was one of the guys who didn't agree to Jesus' execution. He was one of the council who dissented. And here he shows his true colors by arranging for the for the burial of Jesus. He's looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph was a well-off man and he had a tomb that was freshly prepared. And they took Jesus body and they put it in the tomb. And they wanted to get it done before the end of the day because it was the Sabbath and they didn't want to defile themselves the dead body on the Sabbath. So they put him in the tomb as a temporary measure because they wanted to come back and give him a proper burial. But the day was coming to an end. They didn't have morgues and refrigeration. So they took the body, they wrapped it in a shroud and they put it in the tomb. And they closed the tomb, fully expecting to come back and to prepare the body for a proper burial. They'll be back soon. And this is where our story ends for the morning with Christ crucified and entombed we saw our good king killed on on good friday he was a king who was mocked a king who went through the darkest hour of despair a king who was king for all and a king who was entombed as a dead man but what does it all mean We've briefly surveyed this story. We've seen some interesting information, but what does it have to do with anything? We need to spend a moment to draw some dots and bring the picture together. If you read the, the the lead up to the story, you see that Jesus was going to the cross intentionally. He wasn't an accident that he was executed. He was going intentionally to the cross. It was his mission. He predicted it. it was always his intention to go to the cross in obedience to the Father. And he did it fulfilling Scripture, the Scripture that prophesied that he would come, the prophesied that the servant of God would come, that he would be smitten and afflicted, that he would be crushed for the iniquities of his people. And on that cross, Jesus Christ took the sins of the world, as we've already said. He took the guilt of the world. What does it mean by guilt? It means all those things which we have done wrong towards God. All those times that we have disobeyed God. All those times we have failed God. Whether we realize it or not. And you might be tempted to think, well, I'm, I'm an alright person, you know. I don't, I don't steal. You know, I, I generally stick to the road rules. and you know I, I try to be nice to people. But Jesus reminds us that that's not enough. Just like the few good deeds that Saddam Hussein did doesn't outweigh the the atrocities that he committed, so for us, the few good deeds that we do doesn't outweigh the evil that we do in our lives. We're so evil that we can sin in our thoughts. Jesus tells us that, you know, it's wrong to murder your brother, but even if you hate somebody it's as if you've really murdered them. It's wrong to sleep with somebody who's not your spouse, but even if you've thought about it, you've sinned against God. That's how serious our sin is. It is ingrained in us. It is stuck in our thoughts. We are sinners, and we need somebody to take away that sin. And that's what Jesus does when He bears our guilt. He takes the punishment that was due to us. He takes what we deserve. He comes as the sacrifice in our place and dies for our misdeeds. So on that day, we needed him to die on that Good Friday because without Jesus there, there is still a barrier between us and God. Our sin still remains as a barrier between us and God. But with Christ as our our sacrifice, the barrier is taken away. There's no more division between us and God. We can... Don Christ's righteousness and we, can, and we can go and we can meet God face to face. We can come to God. And that's why this is a king's death that we will celebrate till the end of time. He was a good king who was mocked, tried, executed and buried in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. But he's one whose death we celebrate because it establishes a reign of, of joy and of peace where people can be one with God in an everlasting kingdom. Here is a king who saves his people rather than kills them, who brings life through his own death. It was Jesus, our king, who was killed on that Good Friday. Let's pray. We have much to be thankful for, our Lord. We thank you, Father, for sending Christ into the world to take away the sins of all of your people. We thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus Christ with this plan to bring us to you. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you obeyed the Father and you went to that cross and you suffered and died in our place. You suffered the horrendous torture in your physical body, but you suffered as you bore the sins of the world. We thank you that you died in our place. We thank you, Jesus, that you are a good king who sets out to, to, to use his life for the sake of his people and not to abuse his people for his own sake. We thank you that you are a good king who brings life and light and joy and peace to us. And we thank you that you would send your Holy Spirit later on so that your Holy Spirit would be able to show us and lead us to Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.